New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Author, historian, and activist Rebecca Solnit says, you can speak as though your life is a thread, a narrative unspooling in time, and the story is a thread. This image conveys that our life moves in time like the unspooling of thread. However, she goes on and delivers a further image on the unfolding of our lives, each of us is an island from which countless threads extend out into the world. In this image, she suggests that not only are we extended outward to others, they, in turn, are extended toward us. Her writings are rich with provocative imagery that takes our soul on a roller coaster ride. What I can say about Rebecca Solnit is that she has a voracious, appetite for life. And she's able to share her obsession with us in the most lyrical and poetic ways, whether she's bringing us the protest march of 10,000 Buddhist monks or sharing the obscure scientific fact of moths drinking the tears of sleeping birds. We are enlivened by her meanderings. Rebecca Solnit is the author of 15 books about art, landscape, Public and Collective Life, Ecology, Politics, Hope, Meandering, Reverie, and Memory. She is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, a National Book Critics Circle Award, and the Lannan Literary Award. She works with the group 350.org on climate issues and is a contributing editor to Harper's and regular contributor to the political site TomDispatch.com. Her books include the Encyclopedia of Trouble and Spaciousness, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, Men Explain Things to Me, and the lyrical memoir, The Far Away Nearby. Join us for the next hour as we explore the passionate world of Rebecca Solnit. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Rebecca, welcome. Wonderful to be here again. It's wonderful to sit across from you once more. I would like to begin. You have grown up with books and nature as your companions more than humans. I would love for you to just say why books have meant so much to you and how they've informed your life. Well, there's plenty of humans in my life in all kinds of wonderful ways now, but I was 
classic kid who was going to go up to be a writer, withdrawn, misfit, didn't really fit in with my peers. And the minute I learned how to read, I fell in love with books. I'd been in love with stories already, telling them and hearing them and watching them. And within that first semester of first grade, I knew I wanted to be a writer after I just got over the idea that I wanted to be a librarian, also a great profession of people who spend time with books. And then I just, I read constantly, incessantly, you know, was, their books were my friends. They were how I learned about the world. And you got a very odd view of the world from books. I know a lot about 19th century social mores in England, for example, and a lot about horses and a lot above odd historical nuggets and things. And, but I think that books really can be a kind of, you know, they were written by human beings. They allow you to come into a deep communion with somebody else's imagination and passion and uh, worldview and principles. And they they can be great friends, even when you have flesh and blood friends around you. I think they're really important. There's a depth we achieve through the written word and uh, sort of wonderful communion in reading where you're deeply solitary but you're also in communion with someone else's mind and maybe not just one other person's mind you're with gandhi and all the salt marchers marching to the sea in british occupied india you're with geronimo and the apaches in the southwestern desert you're with you know uh medical people making discoveries you're with outcasts protesting against their conditions you're you know you get drawn into these human stories and there's some way in which other beautiful things happen with the spoken word but with the written word we go deep in a way nothing else lets us do i just imagine in the in the reading of a book or immersing ourselves in in a book we find a whole world, and 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 we gets it gets slower and slower towards the end because we don't want to leave that world. It be, it it becomes so vivid in our imagination. It really triggers something, wouldn't you say? Yeah, you take up residence in certain books, and I can think of books as disparate as. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea trilogy and Pride and Prejudice, where I feel like I certain points in my life I just took up residence in them and I, you can open them anywhere and you're just back in that world and I've done that with a number of books so yeah they become worlds that you're privileged to enter and it's part of why bookstores and libraries still give me this tremendous thrill it's like walking into a galaxy you know thousands of worlds you can visit all waiting there and you can open up and you're in the Napoleonic Wars of War and Peace or you're, you know, in the Lakota Wars against the railroad incursions or you're with Florence Nightingale in the Crimea or, you know, any number of things. Well, I, you mentioned Ursula Le Guin, uh, Ursi trilogy, and that oh, trilogy had an impact on me. And one of the ideas that I still retain from maybe... I don't know how many, 40 years ago, picking it up. And it was uh, about language and naming things, getting the, the correct name. And it seems to me that right now we're in a war of language. Who will frame the conversation best in 30 seconds? 
it seems like a war to me. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I, it's such a, that's such an interesting comment because I think that so much of what activists do in, is, and it's not the only thing they, they or we do, but you calling things by their true name and making them visible. The civil rights movement was partly about naming segregation as racism and exclusion and making clear the humiliation, the brutality, the deprivation and that when you call suddenly when you call something by its true name, you make the what's been always been tolerated intolerable, whether it's homophobia or misogynist violence or uh, environmental destruction. And uh, so I think a lot of what we do is naming things, and there are definitely battles of words and battles of stories. I was just talking to uh, my partner this morning about uh, the American sniper, Christopher, Chris Kyle, and just that weird way in which guns are talked about as these magic talismanic symbols of power, and that the people who are really deeply invested in them often seem surprised and affronted when you point out that, they, you know, Chris Kyle gave a gun to a mentally disturbed and actually a psychotic person who then shot him to death with it. And there's just such a sense of surprise. And it's like, what, what stories do they tell? How do they not say this is a machine designed for killing people? You know, I want to ask you a question. Did you see that movie? I didn't. I'm there's, there's a, I, I went to see it just out of curiosity, and there is a scene in it at the very end, towards the very end of it, that was confusing to me. Why was this scene in it? And it was a scene that shows he, he's back home from war. He's with his family, two kids in the house. His wife is there, and he has a revolver in his hand and they're playing some game like a, a like a sex game like you know they he they're in the kitchen and he's pointing this revolver at her and and why did they put that in the movie i mean it really points to what you're saying that the the guns are like games and and then it's kind of coupled with sexuality it, it's so weird it was just so so weird, so American. Oh, because it does feel like guns are a kind of religious cult at times. I and mean, lots of people have them who treat them as killing machines and treat them very differently. But this kind of involvement of guns in symbolic identity and play in everyday life and having one in your handbag where your toddler gets it. It's also interesting to talk about that story. What if Clint Eastwood had made a film that followed the whole arc of this guy's life where then Jesse Ventura sues him successfully for libel because he's saying things that aren't true. And then he does this very, very foolish thing of taking a deeply, uh, traumatized, psychotic person to a shooting range and handing him a gun and being shot to death. What kind of a story does that make And when you don't cut it off or Eastwood cut it off? Well, that just reminds me, just storytelling in itself. We grow up in a way that, let's say, we have a fairy tale in the beginning was, and then this happened, and then happily ever after. So it's like this story that has a beginning and an end. 
But as you point out in, in many of your writings, that story is more, that's just a piece of the continuum of the whole story. Well, of course, we're both old enough that we should either be in the happily ever after or a whole other genre <laughs> of storytelling. But yeah, I'm really interested in, in this question of what are the consequences of the stories we tell? Uh, the Far Away Nearby is exactly about that question of what do stories do? What do we do to ourselves and others with the stories we tell? How do you change your story and how does that change the world? We often pretend that stories are givens. It's just that way. And there are, there are facts or things that are true that, you know, measles is contagious. Guns can kill people. But then there are things about, you know, you're my enemy. I'm right about this. There's only one way to do this. Um, or I'm ugly and I'll never succeed, nobody loves me. You know, we have this, we sort of build these houses out of stories and take up residence in them. And in one way, they're invisible to us so that we don't say, I could be living in a completely different story. And another way, we see them, but we see them as inevitable when we don't see ourselves as the storytellers. And so much, I think, of becoming free is becoming the storyteller of your own story, of choosing to define who you are and what you're here for and what your possibilities are. I'm here with Rebecca Solnit, and she's the author of the Encyclopedia of Trouble and Spaciousness, Men Explain Things to Me, and the memoir, The Far Away Nearby. If you'd like to know more about her work and her writings, you can go to her website, RebeccaSolnit.net. That's Solnit, S-O-L-N-I-T, RebeccaSolnit.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Rebecca Solnit. She's the author of The Far Away Nearby. Rebecca, we're talking about storytelling. We're talking about language and other things. I'd, I'd like to talk to really go into a little bit about the story of your mother, because you lived with her in her Alzheimer's. And so talking about the story is the story sort of her story, you watch it dissolve in her life, her, the way it was before and then during with all the different stages of, 
of things falling away. Can you describe your adventure in that? Yeah. My mother had been angry at me most of her life. I think she had a fairy tale, this very compelling story that I had something very important I wouldn't give her. She somehow thought if I loved her enough, if I nurtured her enough, if I, you know, mirrored her enough that she would be made whole. And she was always convinced that rather than that, I didn't have this thing to give her, that I was I was withholding it from her. So she was spent a lot of my life, particularly from like 13 on, sort of retaliating as as she saw it. And it was sort of a one-sided war because I wasn't particularly at war with her. But And she had all this other anger, much of it, you know, at the world and at men, but I was the safe place to direct it, and which is also a story about women not having so much value. And you were the one daughter, right? Right, three sons, three one sons, daughter. One daughter. And it's interesting. And then the Alzheimer's came, and we tend to think that we are our stories and our facts and our data. And she began to lose her stories. And there was this amazing moment where she just lost all her stories about me. And I'd walk in the room, and I was familiar, and I was there to help her, which is pretty much what I'd mostly been doing the last few decades. And she was delighted to see me. And there was a moment where I was mildly snarky and turned to one of my brothers and said, it's like we're in the same family. But suddenly, because she lost her stories about how it was unfair, and there was also all this stuff about what I looked like, and it was unfair, I was blonde, and I shouldn't do this. And, but it was, and it was interesting, really, in the writing of this book, realizing that what she was mad at was so much narrative. It wasn't actually who I was and what I did, but the symbolic place I occupied as the daughter, who she sometimes confused with her sister, she adored but was very jealous of, and, you know, that that this enormous burden of stories was what had always come between us. And then the stories went away, and there was nothing between us in that sense, and she was delighted to be around me and to be taken care of and encouraged, and I didn't have to walk in wearing armor. I think that there was some point you talked about leaving that relationship, just quitting it, just at some point, long before her illness, and how you felt grateful to have stuck it out to get to that point. Yeah. You know, I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, which is full of gay and lesbian and transgender people, etc., who came here because to get away from their families because their families were so unrelentingly hostile to what they were as well as who they were. And I think there are people for whom discontinuing the relationship is the only healthy thing to do. And I consider it a lot, particularly in my 30s. And again, it's like, uh, it's a narrative arc. If I had stopped then, and I understand and respect and know people who do, but if I'd, in the case of my mother, if I'd stopped then, the relationship would have always been that terrible thing. And it was so interesting. The last seven years of her life when the Alzheimer's took hold of her, really following the story to its its literal end on being there at her deathbed and seeing her shed these stories, these awful destructive stories, which caused her misery even more than me. And seeing her have a few years of real joy, which isn't how we talk about Alzheimer's, but stories can not only be our 
talismans about who we are and how we orient ourselves in the world. They can be prisons and burdens and balls and chains and poisons. And I think some of hers were. And for a storyteller, which is what I do for a living, it's so interesting recognizing what I think we often don't when we talk about stories, which is that stories are not this magic, oh, all stories are good, we love it, that the world's made out of stories. The world is made out of homophobic stories and misogynist stories and racist stories and stories of American exceptionalism and all kinds of delusional stories and climate-denying stories. You know that um, stories can be terrible as well as wonderful, and they can destroy your whole life. You have to be very careful what you do with these things that are powerful, the way words are powerful in Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea books. One of the things that you've talked about is language and stories, and we're seeing how things are shifting. And I know one of your interests is violence against women, and you've written about that. And how we're seeing now that story that we've held, that it's okay to have violence against women, the unspoken sort of thing, the hidden thing in our culture is now shifting, I believe. Do you see a kind of shifting and what is causing that shift? Feminism <laughs> <laughs> is the one word answer. Yeah, you know, when I was growing up, uh, you know, Domestic violence was illegal, but the police would not investigate or prosecute the legal system. And the social system essentially considered that husbands, that wives were property, husbands owned them and had the right to chastise and punish them. And you look at some of the earlier legal stuff, and essentially it's property law. Husband owns his wife. They would advertise for runaway wives the way they advertise for runaway slaves. And women had so few rights, including the right to bodily integrity and self-determination. And um, feminism changed all that. There were protests about domestic violence and marital rape and other things in the 19th century. But then in the 1970s, they revisited that, and this time they really made headway and began to name it. Domestic violence shelters existed. And on the one hand, it's shocking that we're a culture that in almost every town and city has a place where women can hide from their homicidal or extremely violent spouses or partners. On the other hand, it's great they exist because things were even worse when they didn't. And um, and it's epidemic. A woman is beaten every 9 to 15 seconds in this country. And, you know, if it was any other category being violent against a different kind of people, if it was white people doing this to black people, straight people doing this to gay people, adult, you know, that there's that it's this weird way in which it just disappears and is still kind of tolerated and people still kind of blame the victims. But the more visible you make it, the less tolerable it is. And that's, again, about the power of stories. One of the ways that you talk about, bring up in one of your pieces, one of your essays, is the the woman in, um, I, I can't remember, an Eastern college that was raped, and the college did nothing about it, and she turned it into, like, art, Emma, a piece. Yeah, Emma Solkowitz at Columbia University in New York City. And what? Do, how did she combat what was going on, the, the, the silence that was 
prevalent. Oh, wow. Emma Solkowitz is such a heroine and such an amazing young woman. She reported being raped by a student. Other people have also reported being raped by, and the university basically dismissed it. And I have to say, sometimes these things are very, you know, very difficult to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, et cetera. But the schools often bend over backwards in favor of the perpetrator. They're essentially protecting customers, you know, at a for-profit university at times like this, it seems. Um, You know, who knows what was going through Columbia's head? I don't know. That's what they were doing. But she found that neither the legal system nor the college uh, uh, system would provide her with anything that resembled justice. And she's an art major. So for her senior project, she decided to carry a dorm room mattress like the one she was raped on or says, you know, was allegedly raped on around for every time she was on campus and it became this huge global news story and it was this remarkable thing talking about making things visible you can't see an assault that was in the past and that it wasn't recorded documented etc but you can certainly see you know an extra long single mattress and navy blue uh covering being carried around and since her first few days she's always had other people on campus help her so she there's a sort of little parade of people carrying this mattress often it looks like they're carrying a coffin in a funeral parade with her as she moves across campus and it was such a brilliant artwork. I think of it being like Maya Lin's Vietnam Memorial, something that makes visible the enormity of the disaster. And also, how do you help somebody who's uh, been injured or traumatized? And carrying a mattress gives people a literal way to be in solidarity with her. She's made her her wound visible and how to help her visible. And it's, you know, I think it's like storytelling. This is what visual artists do. They tell stories often without words. And you make that you make this thing visible so that people can recognize, support, engage. And uh, there was a, a national support demonstration where students all over the country carried mattresses on their campuses in solidarity with her. It's become this very big thing and I'm sure a very embarrassing thing for her university. And do you do you see a shift in any way in the university protocol now? Oh yeah, we're in the midst of a huge revolution, and a lot of people think, "Oh, campus rape is this terrible thing happening now." And the truth is, it's been happening for a long time. We're just hearing about it now because, and again, it's about storytelling. You know, in rape trials, we shield the victim's name because being raped is supposed to be so shameful. Women, if they weren't ashamed by the experience itself, they're often shamed by the investigation and the coverage that blamed them and treated them as they were, you know, uh, unclean, contaminated, impure, as though it was their fault. What were you wearing? Why did you act, you know, why did you leave the house? Why didn't you wear a burqa? And what is your history, your sexual history? Yeah, yeah, you know, and the idea that you weren't, you weren't a victim unless you were a perfect Snow White maiden, pure victim, which very few people are. But people have gotten over their shame. And of course, men and 
children get raped as well as women and have started to tell these stories. And we're in this moment, like the moment in the 1980s when people began to testify about uh, child abuse and, and family sexual abuse, where women are just, in particular, are just telling these stories. And we're in this torrential uh, kind of deluge of stories, which are, as I say, when it comes to people like Bill Cosby, giving shame back to who it belongs to, to its rightful owner. And that's a remarkable, transformative thing. I'm here with Rebecca Solnit. She's the author of The Far Away Nearby. And if you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, RebeccaSolnit.net. Solnit is S-O-L-N-I-T, RebeccaSolnit.net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Rebecca Solnit. She's the author of many books, including Men Explain Things to Me and her lyrical memoir, The Far Away Nearby. We're talking about storytelling, and um, one of your stories is is a medical adventure, so to speak, and and that took you somehow in your convalescing of your what it was breast surgery wasn't it cancer it was or, sort of breast cancer stage zero so it kind of took you in there but it you were able to back out of that story in some way I don't think I backed out of it. I think I went all the way through it. And it was like, there's that wonderful line by Susan Sontag that all of us have citizenship in two countries, the country of the well and the country of the ill. You know, severely, terminally ill people permanently migrate to that other country. I had a tourist visa and wandered through it. And came out. Yeah, and came out. Yes, yes. It was intense, but it wasn't long. And you know, and any, but it did give you. It did take you into that other territory uh, where you're learning a whole new language. You're in the medical ter- territory of medicine and medical doctors and other experts. And having, don't you feel we we learn a new language? We do, I and mean, there is a language that doctors speak most fluently. And when you have something you know, an illness or some sort of bodily disturbance. You go into the medical system and they make images and take tests and and then they become like the interpreters. And it's funny because it is a it is a kind of storytelling art. I will scan these I will take a look at these X rays and interpret them and then I will explain it in layman's terms to you or laywoman's, you know, or this, you know, this other test, this biopsy, this blood sample, etc. And so you enter this very strange world where your body is a text which you yourself can't read and you rely on these other people to interpret it. So you're in this very intimate, strange storytelling relationship with medical professionals 
um, who are often quite wonderful, but it's very eerie to suddenly see images of your body that have nothing to do with your body as you experience it, and to be to have your body be alien in that it is now a text that you cannot read, that you cannot interpret, and you depend on the evidence of others. And you know, and it gets very complex. You get second opinions, and you read the medical literature, and you learn something of it yourself. But you're, you know, in that other country, you may have a visa, but you're, it's not your native language. You're, you know, you're a you're an amateur, you're a visitor or something. And these are people who may not live there, but are their professional guides. It's it's quite a remarkable journey. What did you do to support yourself in that journey? Oh, I had the most wonderful, well, there's, uh, there's in practice and, um, you know, trying to slow down and pay attention to what remains a pleasure and beautiful and et cetera. I hung out with small kids, small children a lot. There's lots of them in my family right now. And, um, and I have incredible and wonderful friends and it's, you know, people sometimes wonder who will show up at their funeral and that's a little bit too long to wait. And it's interesting seeing who shows up in a crisis and it's never exactly, some people are a little flaky or unreliable. Some people, you didn't think were that great show up and are just completely amazing but I was very well looked after by my youngest brother and a bunch of friends all the way through was it difficult for you to receive that help and assistance yeah and that that for me was interesting and it's in the far away nearby as part of the larger thing we think of uh you know, there's that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And we've all grown up feeling like giving makes you good, receiving makes you needy, puts you in people's debt. And David Graeber's great book, Debt, came out not long afterwards. And he talks about debt in a way that I found completely revolutionary, that Money wasn't invented because barter was how we used to do things and it was very awkward. Money was invented to finish a transaction. You know, like I, you know, I provide medical service, you pay me money, we're done. But if I provide care to you and then you provide another service to me, it's not quite commensurate. We never finish and so we're bound together. And there's a sense that owing people something was how you were connected to them and you don't finish those transactions. And people actually really like to give often, and receiving is uh, something you you can give them in a way. And uh, you can see this in uh, Buddhist con- countries in Asia where the monks and nuns who beg allow people to give something that gives them spiritual, confers spiritual benefit on them. To not be allowed to give is a form of excommunication. The Burmese monks turned on the military when the military was doing terrible things to the Buddhist community there. So it's, you know, it's such an and interesting... how did they turn on the military? It was this interesting thing because, of course, in Burma, the monks go out every morning and receive food. They don't ha- handle money. They don't buy things. They're given everything they eat. And, and the benefit of those who give, they get some sort of it's benefit. spiritual benefit. You know, it's a very they important earn, spiritual they, benefit. It's like they yeah. earn a spiritual benefit. Well, in a sense, it's like the monks are giving you a chance. You know, they're going out to, to have spiritual benefit daily. And they turn their, there's this very radically powerful gesture they make. They turn their bowls over and refuse to accept when they, and it's like excommunicating someone in Catholicism. They refuse to accept from the members of the military and their families. 
And it was a very powerful gesture of ostracizing them, cutting them out of the the sort of community of of blessings and spirituality and exchange. So, you know, it's always hard to, I think in this culture, because we always see it as being a taker, being in someone's debt, and people are often very anxious to reciprocate so that the debt is, you know, is canceled. But people want to give and, um, you know, and some debts are unpayable. There's a wonderful story in Graver's book about the writer um, Ernest Thompson Seton, a great Canadian naturalist, whose father sent him a bill for his his for rearing him when he was 21. You know the cost of delivery and food and medical care and clothing and education and whatever else. And Satan paid it, and then it was a sense that okay, that relation, I've paid my debt. I don't owe you a damn thing. And he never spoke to his father again. You know, wow. and, and it's interesting, this, you know, what do you want to cancel, you know, is what we owe each other in a loving relationship, a deep friendship, a romantic relationship, parents and children, other family members, you know, it's unpayable. You, you know, I think that you reciprocate and that you give to them according to your capacity, but you can't. You know, it's not like a monetary transaction where like you gave me this and then I paid you off and now like the checker in the grace grocery store, we're completely done with each other. That reminds me of something in your book, the art installation you talk about in, I think it was in a hospital when you were going through your your um, medical adventure, so to speak. When you were a tourist. Oh, my tourist. friend Ann Chamberlain's installation at Mount Zion. Wait, this uh, is one with, in San Francisco. The, with the, the red threads that show all oh. of our connections. Oh, there's two uh, pieces by the great artist Ann Chamberlain that you're describing. One is a series of tiles she made at Mount Zion Hospital, part of the UCSF hospital system in San Francisco, where I was treated. The other is... The last work of art I believe she completed as she herself was dying of stage four metastasized breast cancer as I was being treated. It was very profound sort of being on her journey with her while on my own, you know, more touristic tour through illness. She made a series of a, a whole world of islands out of plaster of Paris, this arc, this huge archipelago of white islands on two white walls at right angles to each other. And then she connected them by red threads. And it was did what visual art does so wonderfully, which is to provide something which, because it's not in language, but it is a kind of narrative or it is full of meanings and metaphors, it can mean so many different things. You know, it looked a little bit like the route maps you see on 19th century map or root lines that show like how you tr- how the trade goes from Hawaii to the mainland and to Fiji and to China and Japan and whatever. But it also felt like, was each island a being and these were the things that circulate between us? Was this a map of how meanings are connected or powers are connected? It could mean so many things, but it was such a beautiful just picture of interconnectedness and circulation. And for me, it also connected very much to when you take the precepts in Zen Buddhism, which is lay ordination, they give you uh, what's essentially a family tree, a family tree not of blood, but of storytelling. But it's literally a red thread on which all the names are written between you and the Buddha. You know, it's the teacher who ordained you and her teacher or his teacher and the teacher who ordained that person. 
and you get and it allows you to see Buddhism as a twenty five hundred year old conversation that's been kept alive and by oral transmission through all those generations. You know, and your teacher, if it's Zen Buddhism, will connect up to Dogen Zenji, who brought Zen from China to Japan, which will then take you to the Chinese ancestors and then to the first Chinese ancestor. And I'm so much of my imagination is about tracing these longer, more complex stories and these more subtle and far-reaching influences, these things we don't always count when we tell the simple sort of boy meets girl, right. uh, two countries go to war, right. what's happening this week stories. I'm interested in the kind of old origins, the the long, you know, these sort of long things, these subtle things. I'm reminded of... The, the whole like civil rights movement and how going back to literature, how somehow it goes back to Thoreau yeah. and then Tolstoy Tol- and then Gandhi and then Martin Luther King. I mean, it's like this. Yeah, whole- exactly. And isn't that amazing to see this guy in Massachusetts who seems to have very little impact in his very quiet life and dies of tuberculosis in his 40s? And then his work lives on. Meaning Thoreau. Yeah, yeah. Henry David Thoreau dies of, t- of tuberculosis during the Civil War when he's in his 40s. And without having made a very big noise in the world, but his books never die. They're still very much with us 150 years later. But Tolstoy's influenced by them. Tolstoy influences Gandhi. Gandhi becomes a great source for Martin Luther King, who actually goes to India to study. And then this thing that, you know, went went from... Massachusetts to Russia to India comes back to the United States, back to Georgia and Alabama and the rest. And then it becomes the tactics that are used all over the world when you look at uh, the Arab Spring or the end of the Berlin Wall and the Eastern European uprisings at uh, incredible victories in East Timor and the Philippines and so many other parts of the world. Um, these tactics, you see this kind of transmission of ideas that's this very long thread and you can trace back to Henry David Thoreau and then if you look at his influences, you know, they include uh, Vedic, uh, uh, Hindu and Buddhist literature and various kinds of philosophy and things like that and a very inventive mind of his own. This is all very encouraging I believe. Uh, so we'll talk more about that in just one moment. I'm here with Rebecca Solnit. She's the author of The Far Away Nearby. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Rebecca Solnit. She's an author, historian, and activist, and has written many books, including The Far Away Nearby, a lyrical memoir. Rebecca, there was someone in your life who surprisingly took you to Iceland. Can you share how you got to Iceland? Oh, speaking of stories and threads and connections, this was a wonderful, strange one I didn't really understand until after I'd been in Iceland. But when everything was sort of was going wrong in my life that fall when my got diagnosed and my mother was really falling apart before as we were figuring out what we needed to do about her condition, etc. The Icelandic artist Olafur Eliasson um had a big exhibition at San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and he had sought me out because of something I'd read. And this is the crazy, strange life of a writer, is that writing is deeply solitary, and sometimes it brings you in contact with people in amazing ways. So I'm friends with Olafur, who's remarkable. I walked into the opening. He was talking to a woman about my height and my age, and not too far from my coloring. And he introduced me to her. She had just flown in from Iceland for the opening. She was a friend of his writing about it for the main Icelandic newspaper. And we fell to talking. And she was only here for 24 hours, had never been before. I said, well, and she was delightful. And I knew that she she told me she just read my book, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, and might teach it or translate. I forget what she, what Frida said. But I said, it's a pity you're only here for 24 hours. You should see the place. And then we ended up, I said, when's your flight? I picked her up a few hours before, and we drove all over San Francisco on the way to San Francisco Airport. And I didn't think anything more of it. I thought, well, maybe I've made a friend. And if I ever get to Iceland, which I'd always wanted to do, now I have somebody to have coffee with. And during the absolutely worst part of coping with my mother's condition, which at that point had made her kind of a, a risk to others and herself and somebody we didn't know what to do with, et cetera, we were, I was walking her around Lake Merritt in Oakland to... Uh, put her in a good spirits before we did the intake interview for the wonderful place where, as it ended up, she spent the rest of her life. And my phone rang with an unfamiliar number. I answered. It was Frida. This was just about a month since I'd met her. Uh, and she was calling from Reykjavik in Iceland. And she said, you said you always wanted to come to Iceland. How about, you know, how about coming next year for this well-funded residency at the Library of Water in Stikesholmer, Iceland? And I kind of shocked her by saying yes right away. At that point, I was like a magic carpet had, you know, had shown up. A mad door had opened in the wall. You it, always have advice about... Uh, Always saying yes to an adventure. Yeah, never never so turn down an adventure without a really good reason. So you were taking your own advice there. Yeah, yeah. My mother had also been timorous and dutiful, and I had to work hard, you know, to overcome whatever had been inculcated in her, and she inculcated in me. But so I said yes, and then... Um, Frida Bick and her family became great friends. I'm still very close to them. Her son is now studying music in California and lives five blocks from me in a place I found. He and his wife and their daughter are really very, you know, it's uh, I'm like their aunt at this point, uh, many years later. But um, so I went to Iceland. It was profound being there and really great sort of deeply safe, deeply removed place to convalesce and think things over and restart. And um, and she, her daughter, who's a remarkable artist, Ellen Hans' daughter, uh, 
um, they were visiting me, and I found out what really happened, which is that Ellen's first love had been this young man named Ulfur, which means wolf, and and Icelandic. It's all very much this fairy tale. And he developed leukemia in his teens and spent the rest of his several years on Earth into his mid-twenties, you know, surviving and dying of leukemia, recurrent leukemia. And um, she moved to Berlin and began a very remarkable art career. She's a great artist. And he came to visit her on his way to a bone marrow transplant, a kind of last resort treatment for what he had. And it's amazing reading up on leukemia and realizing, you know, that all these millions of blood cells coming out of the bone marrow and how live bones we see as these symbols of death are. And um, so he went to get the bone marrow transplant and it failed and he commenced to die. And she never saw him again because she was in Berlin and by the time she realized what was going on, it all went too fast. But her parents were there with him and his family. But when he was in Berlin, they had gone to a bookstore and he picked out a book for her and given it to her. And it was a field guide to getting lost. My book, which for some reason was on a table in a bookstore in Berlin. This is the crazy kind of messages and bottles that books can be. And she read it and was really taken with it. Although like many visual artists, she's not really a books and language person. Artists are people for whom language is not their language. Objects and forms and color and the metaphors and meanings embedded in them yeah, are their language. They speak more fluently than the rest of us. But so she, she found the book made a big impact on her. She really liked it. She gave it to her mother who read it on the plane to come to San Francisco, which is, which is a lot of why I got invited to go to Iceland. And so to find that this young man who I would never meet because he was already dead when I got to Iceland had played a huge role in my life and even after his death was creating relationships and friendships to find that I got to a completely new part of the world because of a book that I wrote. This for me was such a beautiful illustration of that map Anne Chamberlain made, the white plaster islands connected by the red threads. And I always want to tell stories with these details that because maybe because there was leukemia, maybe because there was friendship, maybe because there was a book in a store in Berlin, maybe because I offered to show this woman around, maybe because, you know, that our lives are not only made out of the big obvious things, who are your, you know, your parents, who are, you know, what is your class and race and gender and all these big things that matter, but these little things that you contract, that Henry David Thoreau contracts tuberculosis, that this young man gets leukemia, that, you know, these little, that a microbe, uh, St. Francis, I mentioned, contracted malaria when he was trying to be a warrior and during his convalescence changed his life to become the great spiritual influence who's now the namesake of a pope unlike any pope we've ever seen. You know, these the Franciscans are doing amazing work for the homeless in, in San Francisco now. You see these legacies, these threads, and so much of my work as a storyteller is to trace these threads much further than we usually do and to trace ones that seem small and subtle. And of course, this thread that began with a young man with leukemia buying a present for his former girlfriend in a bookstore in Berlin, that thread became a rope and then a cable that hauled me all the way to Iceland and now connects me to this remarkable family um, 
you know, uh, that I'm still very close to. And I'm very, I've now influenced their lives, helping the other author in the Bay Area and all these writing and writing an essay for Ellen's uh, artwork and, you know, but mostly just the friendship continues. It's just amazing, amazing that you're just weaving this whole pattern of these connections, this young man who... His story continues on as you mention it right now. Now we know him. He still is with us in some deep and profound way as you tell the story. So it's like the life just keeps living on. Yeah, and I think that's true of so many people, St. Francis and Henry David Thoreau and Martin Luther King and Gandhi and uh, Rosa Parks and all the rest, that these very public lives, but I think also these private lives, this this young man did some work in film and made some music, but I say anybody who reads and is impacted in any way by the faraway nearby is impacted by him because he's the, you know, he's a major force in the narrative that is in the book. And we live on in all these ways, our, you know, our, our acts, our gifts, our connections. We're only one thread, but it's woven into the fabric of the world that uh, the rest of us uh you know, are are constantly making, constantly being made by, and this world made out of stories, among other things. And and you're really pointing out that that those connections, in a very poetic way, your book is filled with those kinds of connections, and they're not always pretty. They're not always what we expect. They're just um, these moments that we un- start to understand the interconnectedness of all of life. Yeah, we really see the fabric that you know of the world. We see how it gets woven or patched together. We and sometimes, as I think you said at the opening, in that metaphor of mine, we can see that we ourselves are needles tracing threads, stitching, leaving a path behind us for better, or stitching things together. In some way, that image of footsteps as stitches of ourselves as kind of leaving these trails behind us is a very compelling one for me, too, that's very much part of the book. So I I agree that it, it is very much part of the book and helps to remind us of our own connection to life itself, which is so mysterious, why we're here, why how the synchronicities that happen, how we become aware of them and help one another and are helped by one another. Exactly, exactly. That's something I really was really interested in with this book is looking at how we make stories and stories make us and how important it is to examine them and be the storyteller and get it right because otherwise your stories can destroy you. I thank you so much, Rebecca, for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Justine. I've been speaking with Rebecca Solnit. She's an author, historian, and activist, and the author of many books, including the Encyclopedia of Trouble and Spaciousness, Field Guide to Getting Lost, and the lyrical memoir, The Far Away Nearby. If you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, RebeccaSolnit.net. And Solnit is S-O-L-N-I-T dot net. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 
3532. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.